0: This is episode number 378 with Vern Harnish of The Founder Podcast.
1: What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty
0: human who is intent on learning.
1: It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 Now, the Founder Podcast, even the greatest entrepreneurs had help.
0: and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, Nathan here. Welcome back to another episode. Today's guest, his name is Vern Harnish, and he's the founder and best-selling author of Scaling Up. Now, Vern is also the founder of EO, Entrepreneurs' Organization, which I've been a member of myself. It's been incredibly life-changing for me. And in this episode, you're going to learn some truly incredible stories from someone that really knows what it takes to grow and scale the business of your dreams. Vern's gonna break down his encounters with Steve Jobs and he provides some of the most sage advice we've ever heard on this podcast when it comes to growth and scaling up. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Vern Harnish. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today?
1: You know, Nathan, it's. I, wrote a, I read a book called Greatness Cannot Be Planned, and, and this was not what I was planning to do. I, I thought I was going to be a nuclear engineer. I was heading off to the Navy uh, to run nuclear subs, but I got diverted. Um, so uh, the quick story, it was kind of a riches to rags story. My dad had launched a successful company with three partners, scaled it dramatically. We were well off, and then he lost it all in the 73 recession. And he started selling everything off that we had, every asset, every home, every property, every toy, and ultimately couldn't, couldn't save it, uh, really kind of you know, messed up our family. He became an alcoholic. And, and so we became janitors. Uh, I, we then decided, after doing that for six months, that we'd launch a little appliance repair business. And I ultimately joined Nathan, my wholesaler in Wichita, Kansas, and actually helped them scale that to about 12 million. Uh, but the president was a YPOer and the son of the founder. I knew I wouldn't get to be president. So I was going to head off to the, I'm an engineer by training. I was going to head off to the nuclear Navy. And Don Simpson, my mentor, the, the owner of the company said, hey, go talk to a board member who was building the Center for Entrepreneurship at Wichita State. And I went to go talk to him and I came out of the meeting, him hiring me to say, hey, why don't you come help me build this Entrepreneurship Center. And I thought, you know what, that'd be cool. Uh, If I could help any entrepreneur avoid what my dad went through and our family went through, you know, that'd be worthwhile. And so that's how I ended up in the entrepreneurial world. Launched Ace, launched YEO, launched the MIT program, launched our company. And so uh, next year is my 40th anniversary, Nathan, of helping entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah. Wow. Awesome. So, Talk to us around like scaling. Why why are you so passionate about scaling companies?
1: You know, they are, I've been referring to them lately as the first responders of the local and global economy. I mean, it is the scale-ups, Nathan, that do all the heavy lifting in our cities and countries. They generate generally most of the net new jobs and the innovations that have really been able to help raise the, the standard of living every place. Around the planet. So they're the unsung heroes, and somebody I felt needed to support them, like my dad had needed support. And at the time, as you know, there's always been lots of information on how to start up. You know, today there's like a startup incubator on every corner in every town. And I've got an MBA, which is supposed to teach how to run a grown up company, but there really wasn't this parenting manual of how do you kind of scale up that startup. And so that's why in 91, I partnered with MIT and Inc. Magazine and launched this program called the Birthing of Giants and ran it for 15 years. It really was my crucible for kind of testing what were the real practical tools and ideas and techniques that would be helpful and just making it a little bit easier, you know, work just a little less hard, a little bit less hours, make, make a little bit more money. Uh, and perfected that over a decade. And then that's what led to the book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits in 2002. Now, the name changed to EMP. They still let the old man come back and teach. Uh, when we have in-person again, hopefully it'll be in 2022. But uh, that, that's really what motivated me, is how important scale-ups are in uh, our local and global economies.
0: What would you say to anyone watching this right now where their business has hit a ceiling? Like, if, you know, they've got product-market fit, but they just yeah. can't seem to get past the yeah,
1: ceiling? Well, the short answer is to, well, first, you've got to make sure that you've got the wind to your back. I, I think one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs make is they, they fight too many headwinds. You know, the market either makes you look smart or makes you look stupid. I, I've seen some really smart people, you know, go after starting a company, but, you know, the timing's not right uh the market's not there um or i've seen folks that honestly i didn't think were that bright that have made a gazillion dollars because they caught the wave uh and bill gross actually nathan studied this at ido you know they've launched about 100 companies and had funded about 100 at the time bill said all right could we figure out what made some companies really sore and others not because they look they thought all 200 were good ideas and there were two interesting pieces that came out of that research. And, and by the way, they were looking at the same four areas that we are, people, strategy, execution, and cash. Not, not the businesses that business is that organized, but those are kind of the buckets that we put the decisions in that need to get made right. And so we looked at roughly those same four, gave different names for them. And what he found was two things. One, that all four mattered equally, that you had to have the right people, you had to nail the strategy, You can have killer strategy, but if you don't execute, and then you can't run out of cash. So all four mattered, but he found a fifth that trumped them all. And I actually went back and edited my book after I saw the research and that was market fit. It was the, the market was there. It was ready. He had actually launched a company that was YouTube. The problem is it was too early. There wasn't the bandwidth. There wasn't the mobile devices that made it easy for people to do videos. Uh, It wasn't easy to upload those. The the infrastructure just wasn't there yet to really let a YouTube take off. YouTube hit it right. IDO hit it wrong. And so I think that market, you know, catching the wave at the right time is important.
0: And, you know, there's some studies out there that say like only 4% of American businesses, small businesses, hit a million dollars in annual revenue. Um, I'd love to hear kind of your take. What does it take to get a business to that level?
1: You know, excuse the language, but sell like hell. Uh, You know, one of the the things early on we discovered in looking underneath the covers, is if you look at the four key kind of metrics, revenue, gross margin, profit, and cash, you know, all four matter but they sequence in a very specific way. And zero to a million, it is just all about sales. And I see so many entrepreneurs get caught up in, well, we gotta get the business card, we gotta get the name of the business right, we gotta get the website looking properly, and they spend all their time on everything, but just find anybody who's willing to buy what it is that you have. You've gotta literally crawl your way to that million. Now, revenue is always going to be important, but then between a million and 10 million, uh, what kicks in next is, interestingly enough, cash. See, early days, it was you know friends, families, and fools. You just, you know, you had a partner that had a full time job, you worked full time in the business. However, you had to piece it together, you kind of crawled your way up to, and crawled, you know, clawed your way up to a million. But a million to 10, Nathan, that's when you're going to grow faster than you're ever going to grow. It's a 10X. And growth sucks cash, so you better figure out how you're going to fuel this thing over that next period. Then at about $10 million, what happens, the complexity starts to crush your gross margin. You don't even see it. But that 4 or 5% decrease is all of a sudden a half a million that you need to invest in a key executive or a computer system or whatever, a marketing campaign, uh, digitization of the organization, and you don't have that money to do that. We like to see at that point that you increase gross margin and that gain four points, don't lose four points. That's like an extra million dollars that you can really put into scaling. And then finally, not that profit didn't matter, and obviously it didn't matter for a long time at Amazon, but at about 40, 50 million, now you're expected to have consistent profitability. See, at the end of the day, you you earn the medium box by creating this kind of consistent engine in a very, you know, inconsistent world. Uh, And it's that constancy that is really rewarded. It tells investors in the market that you actually know what you're doing. And that's what you're trying to figure out uh, up to that point. So a lot of stages that you've got to navigate.
0: One thing I am curious about is you, I have to follow up. You talked about Steve Jobs. Um, So you've obviously worked with some seriously successful founders and entrepreneurs what are some of those key traits that you see amongst really successful founders?
1: Yeah. Um, by the way, we're approaching the 10th anniversary of his passing. Uh, it's been 10 years. It's been a decade. Uh, and it's amazing how, look, I bet against Apple. I, I really thought it would collapse after his death, you know, being such an iconic symbol and, and founder. But, you know, what's, what's neat is, you know, you know, you've really done a great job by how the organization runs when you're not there. And, you know, death is, you know, kind of a permanent not there for a decade. So it's impressive what he was able to do. And, and the first thing that comes to mind, and I've, I've only seen it, Nathan, a handful of times. And in fact, you know, the actor that played Steve Jobs in the movie, oh, no, it was playing Mark Zuckerberg, was The Stare. And Mark had happened to be in a workshop of mine back when he was at Harvard, when I was teaching it at Babson. And I remember him having this look, Nathan, it would just burn through your eyes. Michael Dell has it. Uh, When I met Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs has it. Um, And I've met just a handful of entrepreneurs that literally they can almost see right through you. And it's this intense focus. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of it with Djokovic here in in the U.S. Open as he's going for, you know, a record series, you know, Grand Slam not been done since 1969. And so first, it's intense focus. Uh, Number two is they're actually rabid learners. Uh, You know, it's Bill Gates wanting to read 50 books a year and he always publishes lists. Mark Zuckerberg kind of copied him by doing a book every two weeks, Mark, Mark Cuban. I've known Mark for decades, but I didn't realize till I read his book that he's read for three hours every day since he was in his 20s. And his rule is, I just want to look find one idea that I could apply to one of the 150 plus companies he either owns or invests in. And so I really do think leaders are readers is a, is a real thing and they're hungry to learn. And, and that's why I think folks gravitate towards EO and YPO. It's a place where we can continue our our informal education and learn, as you said, from each other's experiences. So I think intense focus, I think a thirst for continuing to learn uh, is critical. And then, you know what? They're just extremely disciplined and willing to work hard. I I love that Elon Musk talks about that. He says, you wanna be successful? Work really hard. Uh, and you've got to put in the hours. Uh, and a lot of
0: folks aren't willing to do that. And how do you manage that balance, though? You know, um, it's difficult around burnout. I experienced burnout at the start of this year. Um, yeah. Used to work, like, ridiculous hours, and then I realized, like, if, if your mind isn't right, it's not worth it anyways.
1: Yeah, well, first, I, I think balance isn't the word. Um, I think blend, you've got to find a way to blend it all, uh, together, but look, let's just be straight. I mean, in the early days, if you're not putting in 80 hour weeks, uh, it's, it's just not going to happen. What, what you want to do though, is as quick as you can really amass around you, a team that you can begin to offload. And and that's one of the reasons why, um, and Ed Roberts research was clear at MIT that co-founders, scale further faster than single founders. And three do better than two, four do better than three, and five do better than four. Uh, Then you run out of data points, but there's three co-founders of Airbnb. Uh, Brad Smart, I mean, Brad Feld, who was in my very first MIT class, he ultimately co-founded Techstars. It's one of the reasons why you're required. No solo entrepreneur is allowed to even come into Techstars. You have to have a co-founder. And it's that intact team that allows you day one to kind of divide up the duties that make it easier for you to scale. And if it's an intact team, in other words, you had a chance to work together at another business or whatever, and then you choose to leave together, like my dad did and his three buddies at Martin Marietta, you can really launch a rocket ship. Uh, And so it's really about having a team not just being the solo entrepreneur. Though several solo entrepreneurs, you know, uh, you know, can do well. Um, you just have got to outsource a lot of things then as well. You talk to team,
0: um, something that's not talked about enough, mm-hmm. I, I, especially in when people want to scale. Like I, I don't think it's not sexy. I don't think it's one of those sexy things like, you know, and I'm sure you see this in the Growth Institute and all the stuff that you do. Um but it is so critical. And I'm sure you've hired a lot of p- people over your years. What are the things that you could share with our audience around team, hiring and
1: people? So we've got this thing called the Rockefeller Habits Checklist. You know, it's one of the things I'm you know, pretty known for over the decades. And the number one item on that is number one. And look, we we shamelessly borrowed that from Pat choney You know, I referenced 40 other gurus in my book. I hardly have all the answers, but we've tried to work hard to integrate it. And it's the importance of that team being healthy. Uh, in other words, being able to kind of really debate without hurting each other's feelings, to be able to face the brutal facts, as Jim Collins says it. And it's what you've experienced, Nathan, in your forum. You know, do you have forum health? And we talk about it that way. Or is just a few people dominating and others feel like they're not able to contribute? So everything that we've actually learned about what it means to have a healthy forum, the fact that we know a lot about each other, that we're willing to go deep and go discuss the things that we might not with anybody else, are all the same things that you need to do for your executive team. A little side note, Uh, Pat Lantoni uses the tool. Obviously, it's a main tool in YPO and EO forums. And that is the lifeline exercise. And one of the first things that we'll do with an executive team, even one that feels like they're pretty close, is I'll say, all right, go do a lifeline exercise. And for those who aren't familiar with it, you you take a piece of paper and you draw a lot timeline from zero, in my case, to 62. And then you note what are the four or five high points of your life? And what are the four or five lowest points of your life? You kind of map it out. And then you take 10 or 15 minutes to share that with the rest of the team. And that vulnerability, that connection it creates in the sense that, hey, look, we've all had it rough. Uh, And you learn some things about your teammates. I've, I've had executive teams that have worked together for years. In fact, we just had a CEO at our CEO boot camp who's in business with his wife. They finally did a lifeline exercise as an executive team. And Nathan, he, she shared something with the entire team that she had never even shared with him as her husband. And that kind of bonding is, is critical, as well as the kind of personality tests and others that allow you to really appreciate each other's differences. So the number one thing for the senior team is, is to be healthy and to stay connected uh, as humans. That's why even the routine of sharing good news at the weekly meeting, personally and professionally, uh, allows us to stay in touch with the personal side of each one of our lives. Um, When it comes to then hiring and attracting people, there a really simple idea is to always have a fishing hole, to identify a place Where you can consistently get a lot of talent. Uh, We're right now working with a company that we're in the process of helping to sell. My partner is. And they've got a secret sauce. They've got, I won't mention the country, but they've got uh, a a workforce in an Asian country that is spending nothing but all day sourcing candidates for them. They have 9,000 candidates in their database. And that's one of their secret weapons to being able to staff these various projects they do for major pharmaceutical companies and the like. Uh, We've got a client in Florida that went to University of Michigan, and he discovered that the athletic department has a placement service where they place student athletes. And if you want workers who, first of all, have will, the first thing we think you ought to hire based on, the next one's being value match results, skill being last, Um, look, student athletes have learned how to face defeat, to push through the pain, to to get up and work out way before school starts, to know how to compete, how to work together as a team. So that's his go-to fishing hole to get talent. Um, For us at our HVAC supply company, we landed this big contract with Pizza Hut that really allowed us to, to scale. We were getting talent from Honeywell. Honeywell was known to hire young people training up well, and then would like them to join companies like ours where they become Honeywell bigots uh, without being on Honeywell's payroll. And so we think it's important that you find a fishing hole where you can fish and get the talent that you need in order to scale.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a tonne. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder with the lifelines piece that is golden have done it before. Um, Very, very, very powerful.
1: I hope everybody. And one of the things, you know, we learned Nathan is that when you add a member to forum, it's not the old forum plus, you know, a new member, it's a new forum. And so you've got to do the lifeline exercise again. And the same thing as you're scaling the executive team, when you bring in a new person to the team, it's not the old team plus one. It's a brand new team. And so it's critical that you actually do that lifeline exercise again uh, with everybody to create those connections quickly.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. That's gold. Um, can we, for those that are not familiar with the Rockefeller habits and framework, um, definitely go out and get the book, definitely go out and get Scaling Up. But I, can we go a little deeper? Can we talk through some of the other pieces and why it's so critical? Yeah.
1: If we start with the original book, which by the way, I'm revising, I'm going to come out with a 20th anniversary edition. Next year is the 20th anniversary of that book, 2022. And it really revolved around three disciplines and those three disciplines really kind of answer the question. If you're not scaling, whatever that is for you, if you're not achieving what, you know, you could achieve. It's probably for one of three reasons. First, priorities. You're either working on the wrong thing or you're working on too many things. Uh, We used to host George Native. I think we still do at the MIT program. And he would always say, look, you can't sit on two toilets. Uh, So you really have to have that single-minded focus in terms of priority, both today, what's the one thing I got to get done today, this week, the sprint or two, this quarter, this year, and obviously over the next ten to twenty-five years. Number two, though, the only way you really get insight to what that priority, that focus, should be, is to have what I consider the oldest profession: Intel. You know, it's Intel that wins markets and wins wars. It's that that raw data from the marketplace, from customers and employees, and so it's data is the second discipline. And, it, and by the way, John D. Rockefeller had the most sophisticated telegraph system where he could be getting data in hourly from his oil fields over in Russia. Think about what it was like to get information back in the 1800s. I mean, today it's easy, given, given the Internet. And then number three is the meeting rhythm. Look, it does you no good to have this information if you don't get in a room and talk about it. And if you want to move faster, you need to pulse faster. So it's one of the reasons why John D. Rockefeller met with his team every day. Steve Jobs came back. We were talking about him earlier when he came back to Apple to save it. First thing he did is he took his conference room and converted it into a situation room. And the four leaders of the four projects met every day with Steve. And he had lunch every day with Jonathan Ive. And when Airbnb hit the pandemic and lost a billion dollars worth of bookings overnight, Nate, one of the co-founders who I know, said the first thing they did uh, is they went into a seven-day-a-week daily huddle. They met every day for seven days. Um, and they've continued to do a pre- and post-IPO because it's been so powerful. So this, this daily huddle, this day, week, month, quarter, year set of meetings, where you deal with the number one issue inside any organization, communication is critical. So in summary, uh, if you can get in a room and talk about the brutal facts, but you've got to have the information, then you can decide what our priority is today, this week and over the next year. And so priorities, data and meeting rhythms are those three disciplines.
0: Yeah, wow, I love it. when you talk about meeting and rhythms, what's your take on remote versus in-person and everything
1: that's going on in the new COVID environment? You know we've, we've been remote from the very beginning. Um, you know, I was living in Barcelona for eight years, you know, thousands of miles away from anything we might call a headquarters. And obviously all of our coaching partners are on six continents. And so we do have to get face to face as a senior team and, you know, breaking bread together and having those kind of conversations. I had dinner last night with uh, my partner that runs our coaching organization, John Ratliff. Um, you know, no Zoom can really, you know, replace that. But we've been running our weekly council uh, remotely for two decades. And hey, it's better than not connecting. And look, my council is in different cities um all over the world and so we've had no option but to have that kind of connection it's really about the quality of how that meeting runs and the key thing by the way and this is what i want everybody to think about in terms of almost every meeting that they run is are people getting roughly equal talk time you know when google studied team effectiveness and they can study stuff because they got the data uh, in a project called project aristotle They only found two things that determine team effectiveness. One, equal talk time. And number two, this kind of social connection. And guess what? That's what we get in forums. You know what people can't believe, Nathan, that, that, that don't know what a forum is? That you put together eight type A CEO entrepreneurial personalities. And you know what's key to make that forum work? The timekeeper, right? I mean, everybody goes around and has four minutes to check in. You're not allowed to talk longer, you know, talk longer than that. And then you have 12 minutes to present and 10 minutes to ask questions and two minutes to think about your experience share and then four minutes to do your experience share. But what's interesting, the structure of a four meeting guarantees equal talk time. Yet most companies, team meetings the same two or three people dominate the whole call or the meeting. And that's what you really as a leader of that meeting have to pay attention to. And about every 15 minutes you need to stop and say, wait a second, we haven't really heard from you, Christine. You know, What are you thinking about right now in terms of what we're discussing? And then of course the lifeline exercise and sharing the good news is what really creates that social connection. And so those two things guarantee both forum health and team health when it comes to running these meetings. And whether you're remote or not, make sure those two things happen.
0: Yeah, that's gold, love it. Um, I'm curious as well for, you know, you've you've worked with a lot of businesses, what are common mistakes that you see? We've talked about a lot of things that you should do and and a lot of the right things, but what are the common mistakes that you see people making when when they're looking to scale?
1: You know, there I think Jeffrey Moore, nailed it. You know, Jeffrey wrote the book Crossing the Chasm and he really did understand that what got you here as Marshall Goldsmith's book's title, what got you here will not get you there. And so for instance, you know, in the early days because you got to sell like hell, you just say yes to any opportunity you can grab onto. And in fact, you'll often drive your team crazy. You know, a customer will say, "Hey, can you guys do that?" And you're like, "Sure, we can." And then you run back, and the team's like, "Oh my gosh, why did you promise that?" Because, well, we need the revenue. But when you cross that chasm, you know, in the early days, you said yes. You said yes to every meeting. Anybody be willing to meet with you? You'll do it. Anyone willing to talk to you? Anyone that's willing to work for you? Uh, any opportunity? It, it's all yes. But when you cross that chasm, you now have to say no about twenty times more then you say yes. And in fact, I've always thought, Nathan, that was the best definition I've ever heard for having a strategy. People with a strategy say no. People who don't have a strategy have a tendency to say yes. Um, You know, it's even interesting just to be very precise. A lot of times in the beginning of the business, you get some success stories. And so you'll post those testimonials on your website. And what you don't realize is that when you cross that chasm, those people that you still have on your website providing testimonials are probably slightly crazy and the weirdos in your industry. Look, they had to be a little weird in order to do business with a startup, and they'll actually turn off the very customers that you now need if you're going to scale. Uh, it's even with the, with your team, you know, the team that kind of got you to the first million. We actually have a one, one what we call a one-three rule. You know, the the team that gets you from one to three million is not going to get you to 10 million uh, generally. And the team that gets you from 10 to 30 million, it's going to be very difficult to get you to 100 million. And what you do with those team members and how you can put them to other projects are some of the toughest decisions that you've got to make as an entrepreneur. And so it's I think the biggest mistake is not recognizing when you've crossed the chasm. And that what got you here, those reference clients, those those markets that you were in, now it's time for you to really laser focus and say no to a lot more things that you said yes to, including people you're going to hire and, and do business with.
0: Yeah, awesome. And it really comes back to your strategy, right? And that focus, your, your, your annual strategy, your quarterly strategy, and, and really dialing that in. And and like what you said around like the Steve Jobs or the Michael Dell's of the world, just that insane obsession and focus. Yeah,
1: you know one other thing, and it, it's it's like our newest thing. We just named it last week. We've in our CEO boot camp. One of the things that we encourage all entrepreneurs, all top leaders, to have is this this place away from the business where they can do their thinking, where they can work on the business, work on strategy. It. You might call it a hideaway, you might call it an escape, but we knew that wasn't really a good term. And Michael Porter has always said the number one job, obviously the entrepreneur, the CEO is strategy. So we call them the strategist. Uh, obviously you need a number two like Tim Cook and we call them the orchestrator. So, you know, this perfect strategist and orchestrator is a great one, two team, Steve Jobs and Tim Cook. And, and John D. Rockefeller himself would work from home every morning till noon. And then he would go into the office where then you get barraged and interrupted and all of that. So we've been struggling with what to call that. And we finally came with a name. The, the idea is that you've got a, a strategy design studio, but we've, we've shortened it to the studio. We, we actually think every entrepreneur, and I think every leader, anyone who wants to accomplish anything, Needs to find a place that they can call their studio that really ignites their passion, their creativity. Uh, they, can, they can go hide out, and that's when they can do their best work. And we've noticed that. Uh, my partner, John D. Rock, I mean, John, John Ratliff had uh, a condo that overlooked the Delaware River and was set up with the three monitors and the whiteboards. And he just walked into the space and and the view and everything just ignited his soul and he could do some of his best work. Uh, The late Wei Chen, uh, first Chinese citizen to fly solo around the globe. He was an avid pilot and he had multiple planes, including a a jet, um, uh, a fighter jet. And, and he, so he built this hangar out in L.A., away from Memphis, where his company was based, and all of his planes were in there. And he built some special spaces in there where he could hang out and be around his toys. And that's where he did most of his creative work and did a lot of his deals, inviting people over to that creative space. So I think the importance of establishing a studio where you can do some of your best work, we think is critical. Mm. Yeah, you
0: got me excited. I think I need to set that up. Um, Conscious of your time, have to work towards wrapping up. We've got something called the hot seat round. 30 second answers,
1: three questions, and then we'll wrap. Okay. You know, I can't answer anything in 30 seconds. I just demonstrated that, but let's go, Nathan.
0: If you had any other job in
1: the world, what would it be and why? Gosh, I love what I do. Um, It would be an entertainer, it it would be sting. I would love to be sting. (laughs) Love it. Uh,
0: What's the number one trait that every entrepreneur needs
1: to be successful? To be a little crazy. Who do you look up to? Who are your mentors? Mm. Well, I've been really blessed to have mentors. I've got spiritual mentors, Rabbi Barr, Dave Norman, my pastor, uh, gurus, Herman Simon, the hidden champion pricing guru, Greg Brenneman, who's turned around Continental Airlines and all kinds of other companies. Uh, my dad has passed. Uh, so he's not there now. Um, and who I look up to look, I, I love what Elon Musk is doing. I mean, that guy is challenging everything. And anyone who can kind of lip off have the SEC give him a $20 million fine and he turns it into hundreds of millions. as a gain, you, you got to love that. So that'd be my quick answers. And one more,
0: uh, if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur dead or alive, who would it be and why?
1: Oh, it, it's no doubt. It would be Steve Jobs. Yeah. I'd love to have him back.
0: Awesome. Well, look, we'll wrap there conscious of your time, Vern, but that was incredible. Thank you so much. That was awesome. You're welcome. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Grena Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce,